0: You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Everybody loves a good love story, right? Um, I like good love stories. I even like bad love stories. I'll cry at the drop of a hat, even in a poorly constructed love story. So today we're going to go over what one of the greatest love stories in the Bible, in fact, I call it the second greatest love story. It's in the book of Hosea. Now, Hosea is one of the first book is the first book of what we call the minor prophets, and really, the minor prophets is a misnomer because there's nothing minor about them. The only reason they're called minors because they're shorter in duration, not as long as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, but the content of them is just as good as the major prophets. Most people don't know a whole lot about these minor prophets. Maybe they know a little bit of story of Jonah and, you know, his story. Uh, And they can be kind of difficult to read at times, and the symbolism can be challenging as well. But I think if we take the time to dig into a passage and try to pull out what they're saying and relate it to us, it can really be powerful. So I pray that today I'll be able to unpack the book of Hosea, particularly the first three chapters in a way that you will be blessed. As I said, everyone loves a good story. We like to read a riveting book or an exciting movie or even share a funny YouTube video. You know, I used to not appreciate stories very much. Uh, my background's in engineering and business, and I kind of more the, the Joe Friday approach, if you will, for the old timers. That's you know, someone who just give me the facts. I love the Book of Rome because it just builds doctrine brick by brick in a very logical manner, and yet you look at Christ, and what did he do? He told stories, maybe some parables, an occasional rhetorical question to someone that was trying to trick him, but he told stories, and if you stop and think, you know, he had less than three years in earthly ministry, and he had to, to completely change the world. you think he would write this treatise saying exactly how we should live as a Christian? But he didn't do that. He just told these stories and parables why did he do that because stories can reach our heart and our minds and souls in ways that just pure words pure logic doesn't completely do i'm not saying you don't have the need for that i mean that's why we have the gospels with the stories in them and then the and then books like romans and the pauline epistles that give more instruction but he chose stories and i think for good reason So what's the greatest story ever told? I think it's obvious Jesus Christ who came to earth to die for our sins and rose from the dead that we might have eternal life. Now, if I went and talked to fifth graders and say, what's the greatest story in the Bible? They'd probably say Jesus and get that right. And if I asked them, what's the second greatest story? They might say David or Solomon or Moses or Peter or Paul. I venture to say no one would say hosea and probably none of you would either right i want to try to unpack this passage where you'll agree with me that the book of hosea is the second greatest love story in the bible because it's an anticipation in anticipation in pageant form of christ's story like most good stories it has a number of levels hosea the prophet to Gomer, his wayward wife. God, to the nation of Israel, and Christ, to you, the church. Okay, let's go into a little background. Hosea simply means salvation. As you'll see, people's names, particularly in the Old Testament, were very descriptive of their lives. He ministered as a prophet from roughly 753 B.C. to 715 B.C., Hosea prophesied that Israel, often called the northern kingdom or Ephraim, was going to be wiped out by the nation of Assyria. That's not Syria, it's Assyria, and it was going to happen soon in 722 B.C. So during Hosea's life, this the nation of Israel was wiped out. This letter was written during the reign of King Jeroboam II, king of Israel, sometime again before that 722 B.C. date. He lists some some other kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. But the focus of his ministry was on the nation of Israel. Now, let me give just a little more background here. There were great kings of Israel. Most people know of David and Solomon. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became king. Um, A former overseer under Solomon who'd been banished to Egypt his name is Jeroboam, came in just as, as Rehoboam was, was being crowned as king. And he came up to Rehoboam and said, Your father made a y- our yoke harsh. You therefore lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam said, Give me three days. So he went and talked to Solomon's counselors, his older wise sages, and they said, You know, you need to listen to him. He talked to his young friends and they say, no, you've got to show them that you're strong. So Rehoboam came back to the people of of Israel and particularly to Jeroboam and said, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Although my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. So, that started the rebellion. The ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, went with Jeroboam and they separated from the southern kingdom, what we call Judah, which only had really the nation, the tribe of Judah, and a little bit of Benjamin and the Levite tribes. So that was, that was occurred around 930 BC, the split of the Jewish nation to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, or Israel and Judah. So, um, the remainder of the people, again, followed Rehoboam. Hosea was a contemporary of his fellow prophets, Isaiah and Amos, and they all had the same message to Israel, warning them to repent or God will discipline them. Charles Dickens wrote in The Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times and the worst of times. He was talking about the cities of Paris and London, but you could talk say this was relevant to the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah at this time, because when they were at this time, Israel and Judah were undergoing great prosperity, not seen since the time of David and Solomon. It appeared to be good times. There was luxurious materialism, apparent religious devotion, and even seemingly national security. But the law is being manipulated to the advantage of the rich and most of the religious activity was merely show. Sounds familiar? We could say it describes us today. Hosea's cry is that the people have been unfaithful to God, just as an adulterous wife is unfaithful to her husband and warn them of the impending background. With great prosperity normally comes spiritual poverty. It was true in Israel during Hosea's time and even eventually, even the material prosperity will evaporate. I don't know about you guys, but when things are going well for me, I tend to kind of think I can do it and not seek God. And what God uses is times of difficulty to bring us back to Him. And that's what's happening here in the book of Hosea. Uh, let me just read a couple of little passages uh, that show what we're talking about in Amos. He accuses Israel of imposing heavy rent on the poor, saying, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you built houses of hewn stone, and you will not dwell in them. But have planted pleasant vineyards, and you shall not drink their wine. So they exacted a tribute of grain while living in houses, big stone houses, the rich getting richer and persecuting the poor. Hosea also talks about this later in chapter 8, verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built houses, built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I'll send fire upon his cities and shall devour her strongholds. Again, they built palaces but forgot the Lord. This again shows the wealth of nations, but the rottenness that was going within. Soon God was going to wipe out the nation of Israel and take them captive to Assyria. Hosea is warning to Israel about the upcoming disaster is a key point in this book. And I think you'll see numerous parallels when comparing the life of Hosea to our own times. So let's get to the story. Hosea on three levels Hosea and Gomer, his wife, God and Israel, and Christ and the church. And let me clarify a couple of things on Israel, because the Jewish nation before the split was called Israel. After the split, that northern kingdom is also called Israel. So it can get a little bit confusing. But in this time, it's called the northern kingdom is Israel or Ephraim. And the southern kingdom is called Judah or the southern kingdom. Okay? Um, Let me go over just an outline. I call this the first three chapters of Hosea, the second greatest story ever told. The first 11 verses I call focus on the family because it's about Hosea his wife, Gomer, and three children, each of whom are given very symbolic names. Chapter two is about sin and separation. The adultery of Gomer correlates to Israel turning away from God. And thirdly, in chapter three, hope for the hopeless and loved again. This short passage is a beautiful story of God and his reconciliation and hope, all right? Um, Let me just pray before we get into the Word here. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your Word. We thank you for the truth in it. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. I pray your Spirit will be upon me to be clear and in the hearts of people that we can understand a little better this portion of God's Word and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hosea chapter 1, let me read the first two verses. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for, by forsaking the Lord. Is this a true story? There are some who say, no, because surely God wouldn't ask his people to do this. But didn't he ask Christ to die for us, the bride of the church? Have we, the church, been faithful? Has Israel been faithful? You know, a basic rule of biblical interpretation is to take it literally unless shown otherwise. So sometimes God asks his people to carry out orders that seem strange to us. Isaiah 20 gives a good example where Isaiah was told to go naked and barefoot to symbolize Assyria being captured, capturing Egypt. In the Old Testament particularly, we see a lot of instances which seem strange to us, God asking his people to do something, but these are opportunities for them to show obedience. So verse 2, take a wife of harlotry. Why? Because Israel is committing harlotry. Personally, I don't think she was a harlot before the marriage. It's more anticipatory, like, take a wife who proved to be unfaithful. Is this out of character for God? I don't think so. He chose unfaithful Israel. Did Christ die for an unfaithful bride, the church, you and me? Of course. Let's go to verse 3 through 5. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son and Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel for just in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jez- Jezreel and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So what's in a name? Jezreel means scattered. Uh, it's kind of like, it's basically the motion that say on a 4th of July parade, you got somebody in a float and they're scattering candy around. That's that same idea. So they're being scattered, just like they're throwing candy from a parade float. God was going to scatter his people. The significance of the name of Jezreel uh, is also, that's the place where Ahab, who was the worst king of Israel, his family was slaughtered by Jehu in this field called Jezreel. So this name signifies both looking back to the slaughter that happened in the valley of uh, of Jezreel, but also looking forward to what's going to happen to Israel, that they're going to be scattered by the Assyrians in pretty short order. Um, What's in a name? Parents, do you remember struggling naming your child? We had six kids, have six kids. I can tell you that it was not easy sometimes to come up with a name. And can you imagine Hosea saying, you know, God told me that we should name our son Jezreel. And and Gomer says, Jezreel? Scattered? That's what you want to name our son? Yes, God told me we should call him Jezreel, scattered. Okay. Uh, There's a key thing I want you to look at here. Verse 3. Note it says, bore him a son. It was his son. That's not always the case as we'll see later. Verse 5 put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Now in those days, the bow was the most important weapon on the battlefield. So breaking it meant defeat, and it was going to happen soon. Let's go over to verse 6 through 9. So she conceived and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I'll have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she'd weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, call his name not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Okay, let's go back up. Verse 3. Contrast verse 3 when it says, bore him a son, to verse 6, gave birth to a daughter. Hosea is not mentioned there. I think, and others agree, that Hosea, this was not Hosea's child, that Gomer had gone into adultery. It's not his son like Jezreel, but a daughter. No mercy. Both the wording of these verses and also the behavior of Hosea and Gomer indicate so, but I'll talk a little bit more about it later. Her name in Hebrew is Lo-Ruhamah, no mercy. But Hosea shows mercy by taking her as his own child, even though she's not. In verse 7, he'll have mercy on Judah. The prophecy is that only Israel will be captured and exiled at this time. It was roughly another 135 years, 586 B.C. to be exact, before Judah was captured and exiled by Babylon. So he's sending a little note to Judah, not, not yet for you guys, you need to repent, but the one it's really impending on is the nation of Israel. Verse eight and nine, she quickly had another child. And as people who wanna to try to allegorize this passage, it's very unusual for someone to have the kind of detail in verse 8 and 9, you wouldn't expect that in something that's an allegory. So who's the dad? I don't think it's Hosea. You know, she gave birth to a son, not bore him a son. And then Lo-Ami, not my people. She didn't wait long before having another child. Not just loved, but totally disowned. This is true for Israel as well. Gomer had gone into full-fledged harlotry. And the names of her children reflected a progression of hardening of her heart. They went from scattered to no mercy. Sometimes that's used compassion or love. So from scattered to mercy, no mercy, to not my people. This resulting progression symbolized the nation of Israel's increasing idolatry, resulting in being deported from the land and scattered throughout the region. All right. Verse 10, yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And In the place where it said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is kind of a parenthetical prophecy about the future hope. Verse 10, talking about the sands of the sea, a good Israelite would know, hold it, that was a promise given to Moses, right? That his descendants will be as numerous as the sand in the sea. God has not forgotten his people, and that message was really important for the nation of Israel to remember because it'll be a long time before they have gathered back together. The key point here is that Judah and Israel will be reunited and regathered And they'll have three things. They'll have one leader, they'll be in the land, and there will be a great day. Now, um, I, I think these things, have these things happened? My purpose is not to get into the eschatology of this as there's diverse opinion upon many godly and wise people. But this passage is clearly showing that God is pointing to a future day to give hope for God's people. Israel will need to cling to that hope that one day that they will be gathered together and have a glorious day. And we too can take encouragement from that passage that we'll be with Jesus forever in this glorious day. Chapter two, the separation. So say to your brothers, you're my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her into the day, as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Again, the basic rule of biblical interpretation is who is talking and to whom is he talking to? I believe that he's talking to Jezreel, his oldest son, his only son there, his natural son. And it's an interesting play on words that he doesn't say, not my people and no mercy, but he says, you know, say to your people and your sisters, you've received mercy. Again, showing a kindness that they can look forward to. So what does Hosea want him to say? He pleaded, let me read verse two again. Plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and adultery from between her breasts. Do you see what he's doing? He's pleading with Jezreel, his son, to talk to his mother because she's not listening to Hosea. That you need to do this. I mean, your heart just goes out that he's reduced to asking his son to do these things to her mother. It's really sad. Gomer's unfaithfulness caused the marriage to be torn apart. She left him, but he still loved her. This parallels the relationship, obviously, between Christ and the church and God and Israel. This this account of Gomer's slide and Hosea's generosity reflects this. Gomer was probably an attractive woman, and she first left Hosea for pleasure, but as we see, as she grew older, her attractiveness diminished and her wayward lifestyle was needed just to make have money enough for the basic necessities. Verse four through six in chapter two. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they're children of whoredom. For their mothers played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I'll hedge her up with thorns and build a wall against her that she cannot find her paths. This describes just the continual downward descent. Who does she think is giving her food, drink, and clothes? Her lovers. Describe in verse 6 and 7, describes the hedge to prevent her from going too far away. It prevented her from even going further down. I think this is similar to what God does for us. God sometimes puts a hedge of protection around us that we don't even realize. In fact, one of the things I'm looking forward to when I'm in heaven is just find out, you know, did did your guardian angel protect me from all these things here? I'll be shocked, I'm afraid, how many situations God has just put his arms around and a hedge to keep me from going the way that I was wanting to go, but God protected that. Verse seven and eight. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it's better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So who actually gave her food, drink, and clothes? It was Hosea. It was I who gave her that. And what did he do with these gifts? What, what did they do with the gifts? They sacrificed them to Baal, the God. I'm going to try to kind of paint a word picture of what Hosea writes. God must have asked Hosea, do you know your wife is, is living in the poorest area of the city with a man that she's not married to? Go help her out. And Hosea probably says, why? He said, go and give her some food. So he takes food and he goes to her house, or where she's living. It's not her house; it's her lover's house, and gives them to the guy. The guy looks at him and says, "Why are you giving me this?" He said, "Just take it and take care of Hosea." He said, Excuse me, take care of Gomer. So he did. Now it's obvious that the lover there didn't tell Gomer that it was Hosea giving him that those gifts. He just took it, and, and I'm sure he made it clear that it was him that, that was giving her these gifts and took credit for it. This must have just ripped Hosea's heart to see what was happening, but he still gave. That's love. I'm going to skip the rest of chapter 2 for time's sake, but let me just summarize it. That This last section of chapter 2 just gives, showing God's hope for Israel for a future restoration. Again, pointing them past the current demise of the nation to look to God in the future. Now let's turn to Hosea chapter 3. It's just a beautiful passage, Hosea 3, and it's just five simple verses. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come to fear the lord and his goodness in the latter days. James Montgomery Boyce, a well-respected author and longtime pastor of Tenth Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia says, "This is the greatest chapter in the Bible." I'm quoting him. He says, "It portrays the greatest story in the Bible, the death of lord Jesus Christ for his people, in the most concise and poignant form to be found anywhere in scripture." I agree with him. Again, it shows that love on three levels Hosea's love for Gomer, a wayward wife, God's love for Israel, a wandering, idolatrous nation, and Christ's love for you and me, the church. Let me re- reread verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and Love cakes of raisin. God gave Hosea another strange command. Go and love an adulteress. The context is this adulteress is Gomer. She's still an adulteress. The raisin cakes were probably, again, a sacrifice to idols. Let's look at verse 2 again. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. Why did Hosea have to buy her? I think she's no longer desirous anymore, even as a harlot. Her lovers have left her, and now she's being sold as a slave because she couldn't pay her debts. And Hosea had quit paying her as well. So he bought her verse four and five, is a promise of the restoration of Israel in the last days. They would need to have that hope as they were soon to be exiled into Assyrian captivity. So how did Hosea buy her? Most likely through an auction. Let me try to reenact an auction. Um, I'm not gonna plan a third career as an auctioneer, but I'm gonna try to reenact this a bit. Slaves were sold back naked in those days. People inspected the slave, like you would a horse or a cow. The guys were probably oogling her, and it's so humiliating. She was up on kind of a stage, and the crowd was looking to bid on Gomer. So this is how I think it could have gone. I think Hosea was in the back with his cloak and maybe his hat pulled down low over his eyes over his head, so he could just see his eyes and his mouth. And the bidding started. We'll start this bidding for Gomer at 10 shekels. 10 shekels, anyone. 10 shekels he bids. He has 10. Do I have 11? 11 shekels of silver. 11 shekels of silver from somebody in the back of the room. i got 11, give me 12. 12, 12, 12, 12 in the front of the room. We've got 12, 13, 13 shekels of silver. 13 in the back of the room. got 13, 14. Give me 14. 14 in the front. I got 14, 15. 15 in the back. I got 15, 16. Give me 16. 16. Anybody, 16? From the front goes 15 shekels of silver and a Homer of barley. The auctioneer goes back. 16. I got 15 shekels of silver and a Homer of barley. Do I have more? 16, 16. From the back of the room. Hosea says, 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Sold to the man in the back. It was Hosea. As he came up to the front you can see the people talking. Hold it. That's Hosea. And that's his old wife. He's buying her back? She wouldn't She wouldn't live with him before. What makes him think that this is going to change? So they were ridiculing him as he came up to the stage. He took his cloak off, wrapped it around Gomer, and took her off amidst the catcalls of people saying, she won't live with him now. What a fool he is. Why did he do this? This is love. Let me change the players. Who's Gomer? We are. Who's the auctioneer? God the Father. Who's Hosea? Christ. Who are the other bidders, worldly pleasures? You are on the auction block, full of sin, naked and ashamed. The world is bidding, fame, wealth, influence, prestige, pleasure, and power. When all seems lost, Christ steps up to bid for us. His bid is the highest, His blood. Sold to Christ, there can be no higher bid. We're no longer naked, but clothed in His righteousness. So what's your response? Can you identify with Hosea? Maybe you have a wayward spouse, you need to let her go for now. Hosea had to do that for a time, but maybe you need to go and show her the unconditional love that Hosea showed to Gomer. Commit to your spouse the way that Christ commits to us. Love that person regardless of their action. Maybe you're more like Gomer, not necessarily falling into sexual impurity, but you've severed important relationships with family members or friends. You need to repent, ask forgiveness, and seek reconciliation and change your ways. If you don't identify with either of them, let me ask you, what's your response to Christ buying you? We're all like Gomer and Israel, and then we've turned away from God at times. We need to better appreciate and respond to his unconditional love and show that love to others. Maybe you've not experienced God's unconditional love and forgiveness. If not, I or one of the elders, other elders, would love to pray with you after the service.